want to welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar series called The Colloquium. And uh, today I'm going to actually introduce an Ag Biofuse student, uh, Nolan Spiker, who's from um, CRDM, Communications, Rhetoric, and Digital Media. And he will actually uh, be introducing our speakers. And today's uh, panel was organized by a number of Ag Biofuse students. So without further ado, Nolan, uh, I'll give you the mic. Uh, great, thanks Don. Um, hi everyone, welcome to the colloquium today on cinematic narratives and the public image of science. Um, as Don said, I'm uh, Nolan Spiker. I'm a second year doctoral student in state's um, communication, rhetoric and digital media program. I'm also a member of uh, AgBioFuse Cohort 3. Um, so before we get started, I wanted to mention that the, the brainstorming, planning, organization behind the, the colloquium today um, was a collective effort of PhD students, um, all of whom are fellows in some way or another of the GES Center. So um, those students include Ruthie Stokes, Eric Butoto, uh, Greg Ferraro, Nick Lotion, and Rex Alaregia. Um, some of them are here and some of, some of them have conflicts, um, but I just wanted to give, give them a shout out. So um, on to our speakers today. First, we'll have uh, Leah Ceccarelli from the University of Washington, and hopefully we'll have David Kirby <laughs> from, from Cal Poly. Uh, and uh, I don't want to take any, any much of the time, so I'll let Dr. Ceccarelli introduce herself. And, and talk a little bit today about the topic. And um, yeah, let's just get started. Great, thank you so much, uh, Nolan. So I'm just uh, sharing my screen here. Oh, I thought I shared my screen. Can you all see the PowerPoint? Yes, we can see it. Fantastic. So um, yes, I'm Leah Ceccarelli. I am in the Department of Communication at the University of Washington. I'm a professor there and have been for um, I don't know, 25 years. Um, and um, I uh, am also uh, the director of the Science, Technology, and Society Studies Graduate Certificate Program. So thank you so much for inviting me to come uh, speak at your colloquium. Uh, I have a couple of... Um, See if we can get this. There we go. I have a couple of uh, studies that I published uh, on the subject of uh, cinematic narratives and the public Im uh, image of science and technology in the Spanish Science Studies Journal uh, Metude, Metuda. So um, those are what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, in the first, which came out in 2015, I looked at cinematic narratives where zombies are created from the release of a highly infectious pathogen against which science has no vaccine. I wrote a whole book back in 2013 on how scientists construct their public ethos through the figure of the pioneer uh, as a heroic, fiercely independent um, type of person who courageously enters new knowledge territory to stake a claim to what they discover out there on the frontiers of science. Now, since the contemporary zombie flick bears a striking resemblance to the classic Western uh, with gun-toting heroes facing off against hostile savages, I was really interested in how the figure of the scientist fit into these frontier narratives. So I focused on three popular zombie uh, blockbusters, World War Z, 28 Days Later, and I Am Legend. And my research question was, 
What does the portrayal of the scientist in zombie movies tell us about the way we think about scientists in our modern world? So let's start with uh, World War Z. There we see scientists represented as the opposite of the heroic frontiersmen. They appear as clumsy and naive, ineffectual and dangerous to themselves and others. Uh, one scientist that we meet is Dr. Fassbach, a young virologist from Harvard who is initially described as our best bet at overcoming the zombie pandemic that's overtaken the world. But the real hero of the movie is UN investigator Jerry Lane, played by Brad Pitt. He's a reluctant gunslinger forced out of retirement to accompany the tender-footed young scientist into the dangerous zombie-filled wildlands. As soon as they enter the danger zone, zombies attack. And in the virologist's rush to flee back into the safety of the military plane, he trips on the ramp and accidentally shoots himself in the head, dying instantly. So much for the incompetent virus hunter, Dr. Fassbach. Toward the end of the movie, we're introduced to another scientist at a World Health Organization compound who's likewise characterized as dangerously clumsy. We see a video on which Dr. Spellman, the chief vaccinologist of the lab, uh, contaminating himself uh, with a virus by accidentally cutting his hand while working with a blood sample. He immediately turns into a zombie and then infects all 80 people working in his wing of the compound. And that's him there uh, on the right in zombie form, staring down the movie's hero. So if World War Z presents the image of the scientist as blundering fool, the next movie uh, that um, I'm going to introduce to you here uh, presents the closely related image of the scientist as victim, unable to control the outcome of his own ethically compromised work. Both are popular archetypes of the scientist identified by science and literature scholar, Rosalind Haynes. Uh, this is a theme that's introduced um, um, early in Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later, a 2002 movie that was one of the first zombie pandemic flicks of the 21st century. At the very beginning of the film, animal rights activists in ski masks break into a science lab where chimpanzees are the subject, subject of horrifying experiments. Uh, so a scientist walks in on the activists as they prepare to free the animals and tries to warn them away from doing that. Well, it turns out that the chimps had been infected with rage a virus that's passed through bodily fluids and causes the infected to violently attack the uninfected and thus pass the virus on to others. As soon as the activists release a chimp, it attacks them. And in moments, they and the scientists are rage-filled zombies. Uh, so scientists are being represented in these movies as naive buffoons and as immoral villains who are the victims of their own experiments. But what about the, that image of the scientist as frontier hero that scientists are so fond of presenting in their own public discourse? The third popular movie of the 21st century uh, that I'm gonna talk about um, constructs the ethos of scientists as something a little bit closer to how they like to present themselves. Let's see. Here we go. The stereotype of the scientist as frontiersman exists in a cinematic merger of the other two archetypes that Haynes identifies in science fiction literature, the scientist as adventurer and the scientist as hero or savior of society. This version of the scientist uh, is found in I Am Legend, a 2007 blockbuster with Will Smith as the title character, Robert Neville, a world famous scientist who also happens to be a highly ranked military officer with a ripped physique. 
Neville is the last uninfected man alive in a zombie-infested New York City, where we first encounter him hunting deer in the abandoned and overgrown streets. He's the very image of the lonely frontiersman with a healthy respect for nature and the survival skills to avoid being caught by the bands of uh, roaming zombie savages that come out at night. But Neville is also a brilliant scientist with a well-equipped laboratory in which he works tirelessly in solitude to develop a serum that will kill the virus. When he identifies a promising compound, he captures a zombie to use as a test subject. You can see here in the background a wall of photos of previous test subjects who died in his care, which suggests that he's been doing this for quite some time. In the end, Neville uh, discovers a cure, but to preserve it, he has to sacrifice himself with a suicide run at the zombies who've swarmed his lab, a martyrdom that saves an uninfected woman and child who are traveling through the city and who promise to get that cure out to the few remaining human survivors. With a, a beatific, I am listening, that indicates his renewed faith in God, Neville dedicates his death to the restoration of humanity and becomes the, the title legend. Scientists everywhere can feel proud of their heroic frontier avatar in this movie. But here's a more complicated image of the scientists that got cut from the authoritative version of this narrative. I Am Legend didn't always have the ending that I just described. In fact, it started with a very different narrative arc that just didn't test well with audiences and thus was changed. It was a version, though, that was nonetheless popular enough that it can still be purchased as a separate disc or digital download advertised as the alternative theatrical version with controversial ending. In this version of the movie, Neville comes to realize the zombie savages who've invaded his lab are there to rescue the test subject he strapped to the table and putatively cured. Through uh, final war cries and crude sound language, they convey to him that they want her back. Neville's statement that I'm listening is now a revelation that he finally understands them and respects their right to exist. He reinfects the test subject with the virus and lets her go. And with that act, he gives up on his attempts to assimilate her back into civilization. He says, I'm sorry for what he now realizes was his own nearly genocidal uh, set of acts over the last three years. Neville is a legend in this movie as well, but a legend in a bad way, right? A murderer of post-human zombies whose failure to listen to his test subjects resulted in a horrifying legacy of extermination. So if you interpret the zombies in this movie metaphorically as so-called savages on the frontier wilderness, um, then this ending could reflect a dawning ambivalence in public culture about the American frontier myth and a concomitant, concomitant uh, 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 at the same time, a recognition that scientists should act as self-reflexive ethical agents who don't pursue every research question that they want to answer. This clear-eyed understanding of the legacy of frontier exploration means that scientists on the frontier of knowledge can't assume that it's their manifest destiny to cure everyone. Some people might not think that they're sick at all uh, and that listening to test subjects sometimes means freeing them 
from your single-minded experimental ends. Now, the fact that this alternate version of the movie was abandoned when it tested poorly demonstrates that it's not popular in early 21st century society to see scientists in this way. They can be clumsy and dangerous or heroic and self-sacrificing, but not critically self-reflexive. However, the fact that this alternate ending lives on in video sales suggests that at least some of us are eager for such a characterization. The thoughtfully ethical scientist isn't dominant in the public imaginary, but it's encouraging to see this, that this image isn't entirely absent from the stories we tell when we air our anxieties about both the reach and limitations of our rapid advances in biomedical science. So that was the first study. Um, briefly here, uh, the second study that I want to introduce to you today uh, is one that I co-authored with an undergraduate student, um, uh, Emily Klein. Now, I'm especially interested uh, in what Professor Kirby thinks about this, uh, this one. And so I don't know if he's made it here yet. I don't think he has. Um, maybe I will send it to him. <laughs> um, because he has actually also written on this movie. The movie is the 1997 science fiction film Gattaca. Once again, my research question was, how are scientists characterized in the film? And uh, Emily and I chose Gattaca because it's standard viewing in bioethics courses. It's universally interpreted as a warning against the genetic perfectionism that inspires scientists working on human genetic engineering. In an ad campaign uh, that accompanied the release of the film, uh, we see uh, that, um, that sort of the public fears of uh, genetic engineering being amped up. Uh, this ad proclaims children made to order, and it purports to be an advertisement for a company, Gattaca, through which it is now possible to engineer your offspring. The ad lists traits that you could keep your child from suffering, including premature baldness, addictive susceptibility, criminally aggressive tendencies, and heart disease. These are the same things that a character identified in the movie as the geneticist lists as the burdens that he, with his genetic engineering or his, his, uh, uh, his manipulation, can keep a child from having to bear. Only a tagline at the bottom of the ad hints that uh, it's actually fake. Unfortunately, there's no gene for the human spirit. This tagline is usually interpreted as the moral of the movie. Gattaca is read as a dystopian tale about the danger of genetic determinism in a technologically advanced society. But a close look at the power of the scientist in this movie suggests there might be another message hiding beneath its didactic, didactic veneer. On the surface, the plot of Gattaca encourages a simplistic understanding of its moral structure. It follows a man, Vincent, who's naturally conceived in a society where that makes him a second-class citizen. Vincent wants to become an astronaut, but he's denied that job because of his genetically inferior status. So he enlists the help of Eugene, a valid, that is someone with superior genes conceived through science. Uh, and Eugene provides blood, urine, and other body samples that'll allow Vincent to fool genetic tests and pass as a valid. 
And it works right up until the very end of the movie when Vincent encounters an unexpected final test before entering the spaceship that'll let him realize his dreams. Luckily, the technician who performs that test, Dr. Lamar, passes him through anyway, revealing that he's sympathetic to the genetically inferior Vincent. Unfortunately, says Dr. Lamar, my son's not all that they promised either. Now, these words from the lab-coded technician suggest that the scientists of Gattaca can't really do what they purport to do, that is, make children to order that inherit good traits and avoid bad ones. Recognizing this, Emily Klein and I argue that the movie isn't really about how a perfect class of genetically engineered human beings can be bested by an unmodified man who equals them through his sheer force of will or human spirit. Instead, the film tells the story of scientists who are lying when they claim they can uh, deliver perfected humans. There are lots of clues throughout the movie when you look closely at it that this is its real message. Uh, Dr. Lamar here, one of the valids working at Gattaca, is, as you can see, prematurely balding, as was Eugene, the valid that Vincent used as a tissue donor. Eugene also shows signs of an addictive personality. He's constantly smoking and drinking. His alcoholism even becomes a plot point when he's unable to provide a clean urine sample for Vincent. Director Joseph, the leader of the space mission, when questioned about a murder that took place in the building, says with an air of outrage, take another look at my profile, detective. You won't find a violent bone in my body. In light of the geneticist's claim uh, at the beginning to remove the propensity for violence from the genomes of valids, this claim about the director's genetic profile, which is, would be easily tested in the world of Gattaca, makes it clear that he believes he is free from that trait. But, uh, spoiler alert, it turns out that he is the murderer. Uh, he viciously attacked a coworker, bashing his head in with a keyboard while yelling at him. Uh, his spit discovered in the eye of the victim becomes the clue that reveals his guilt. Uh, we also know that Vincent's love interest, also a so-called valid, has a heart condition bad enough to require medicine to keep it in check. In fact, it seems that none of the perfectionist claims of the scientists are borne out in the characters they supposedly made to order. Now, that's not to say that the scientists are incompetent. There is one genetic manipulation that they prove themselves very much capable of achieving. Midway through the movie, Irene and Vincent go to a piano concert where Vincent discovers that the pianist has six fingers on each hand. Vincent tells Irene somewhat defensively, 12 fingers uh, or one, it's how you play. She stares at him for a moment before replying, that piece can only be played with 12. Vincent is left speechless. His human spirit gives him no answer to the superiority of this post-human virtuoso. Someone with merely 10 fingers really can't play a composition written for 12. The scene shows the scientists of Gattaca might not be capable of perfecting the human form, but they can transcend it. They've created here a post-human who stands above both the so-called valids and the invalids. 
A close reading of this scene of post-human transcendence, along with a look at multiple hints about scientists' failure to achieve the perfection of the existing human form, changes the whole tenor of the movie. A world where the scientists really could do what they promised would be a world where Vincent wouldn't have realized his dream, no matter how strong his human spirit. Right, Dr. Lamar wouldn't have had a flawed son. The mission director wouldn't have murdered the supervisor who was planning to cancel the mission. Eugene wouldn't have been an alcoholic wreck reduced to selling his bioproducts to Vincent. In each case, Vincent wouldn't have become an astronaut. It's the scientist's failure, not Vincent's human spirit, that allows him to succeed. But the fact that the movie scientists can modify the human form to make it even better than perfect means that both the so-called valids and the unmodified invalids are inferior to that post-human 12-fingered musician. We end up leaving the theater thinking we've been given a message about the perils of genetic uh, perfectionism and the undaunted power of the human spirit. But we then fail to notice that we've actually soaked up a message about the promise of genetic engineering for post-human transcendence. Gattaca's scientists are both powerless to do what they say and uncannily effective at doing even more. This figure of the scientist in Gattaca, both ineffectual and very powerful, tells us much about our society's complex relationship with genetic engineering and the scientists that give us these fearful and amazing technologies. So there you have it. Cinematic scientists, they can be clumsy fools, unethical villains, heroic frontiersmen, and either over-promising salespeople or uncannily powerful agents of our post-human future. The image of the scientist in the public imaginary tells us much about how we think about science, technology, and society in our modern times. Thank you. All right, thanks, Leah. Um, yeah, I think we're, uh, we haven't heard from our second speaker today, and I think we're just going to kind of move on with uh, a discussion of yeah, everything I, that Leah's. Actually, Nolan. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> you have yeah, my name. Uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> uh, David Kirby. Oh, yeah, for some reason I have your name there. I'm not sure why. Uh, yeah, sorry. I messed up on the time. For some reason, my calendar said 12. So um, I got a little confused as to when things were uh, starting. My apologies. Uh, do you still want me to? Yeah, uh, certainly. I think there's there's time. Sorry about that. I, I didn't. I no, no, it's that. my fault. I somehow got all confused on things. So. Um, Great. Can sure. we? If you want to. Darren, maybe a co-host. So yeah. that you can have screen uh, screen sharing capabilities. Okay, you now have co-host. There we go. And I think okay. we changed your name there. Thank you. Right on time, Dr. Ceccarelli. Oh yes, yeah, sorry. Finished, and we can yeah. start here. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. So sorry again about uh, coming a little bit late. Um, so I caught uh, a little bit of the end of the of the last talk, and I think my talk will I think uh, go nicely with it. Um, I'm actually trained as a molecular evolutionary geneticist. So I did my PhD on the evolution of introns. 
but I later undertook a retraining fellowship at Cornell University, where I switched my research from bench science to science and technology studies. I now specialize in science communication. <clears throat> Specifically, I study the ways in which sorry, movies and television serve as vehicles for science communication. And the reason I study this topic is because movies and television are very important in influencing what science means to people, right? That is, they influence what we refer to as the cultural meanings of science. And several studies on public perceptions of science demonstrate that what science means to people, right? Not scientific knowledge, but what science means to people significantly contributes to public attitudes towards science. And movies and television can have a significant impact on these cultural meanings of science. Now, I find that it's the creative nature of movies uh, that makes them useful in understanding society's relationship with science, right? Because these entertainment products reveal the kinds of stories that people want to tell about science. So I've written about the interactions between the scientific community and the entertainment industry in the production of movies. So this work drew upon interviews with science consultants and filmmakers and resulted in my book called Lab Coats in Hollywood that you see down there at the bottom left. And I found that the reason scientists serve as consultants for Hollywood movies is that they want to influence the kinds of stories that are told about science in this medium. And this is also the reason that my latest project examines movie censors from 1930 to 1968 and how these censors responded to science. And I'm finding they censored a large number of movies because they wanted to control the stories that were told about science. Now, today I'm going to focus on the stories that filmmakers want to tell about genomics and genetic engineering. And ultimately what I find in my work is that movies have served as an important cultural arena where stories about our anxieties and hopes for genetic technologies are played out. And I argue that this is because cinema has the ability to give tangible form to what is essentially a debate over an abstract entity, the nature of heredity. So filmmakers can create concrete representations of genetics and our attempts to uh, change heredity. Now, the first thing that we should acknowledge, and I, I probably don't need to tell this group, uh, is that genetic engineering, right, it's not monolithic. It actually encompasses three categories of gene manipulation. So recombinant DNA technology, right, that involves combining DNA from different species. Uh, the cloning of multicellular organisms, right, in which a new individual is generated from a single cell. This circumvents sexual reproduction by creating offspring that are genetically identical to adults. And human gene therapy, right, that's direct manipulation of human genes. So I'm going to start with recombinant DNA cinema, uh, recombinant DNA and cinema, and I'm going to start in the 1970s, right, where genetic engineering became a reality with the successful experiments of Paul Berg in 71 and Cohen and Boyer in 73. So recombinant DNA represented the first time in history that scientists called for a voluntary moratorium on research. And scientists called for this moratorium because they wanted to reassure the public, right, that they were only gonna proceed with these experiments when they were certain that there was no danger. However, this moratorium lent legitimacy to the public's fears. So instead of allaying their fears, the public took the self-imposed moratorium as an admission 
that there was something inherently dangerous about DNA technology. So fears of genetically engineered organisms led to a large number of films in the 70s and the 80s that involved genetically engineered monster mayhem. But concerns about genetic engineering, right, they, they persist. And recombinant DNA gone wrong continues to be a prominent topic in films, you know, through to today. So in my work, I found that recombinant DNA films have tended to incorporate three major themes. Now, many of the films of the 70s and 80s embodied the fear that genetically modified organisms would escape the lab and be released into the environment. So you have a number of films like Piranha that you see up there at the top, where scientists create a genetically modified species that then accidentally escapes into the environment and causes death and destruction. Now, the moratorium came out just as the environmental movement of the 1970s was growing stronger. So concerns about GMOs mirrored general environmental concerns. And to many people, GMOs were just another contaminant being put into the environment. So many of these films of the 70s and 80s featured overt environmental themes as well. Now, after the 1980s, films generally sort of jettisoned that environmental theme, and they focused more on the theme of control or really the illusion of control. So in the film Mimic, for example, a scientist eradicates a deadly disease by creating genetically engineered insects from the DNA of termites and praying mantises that she calls the Judas strain. Now, ultimately, her genetically engineered Judas strain evolves into a large carnivorous insects that feed on humans. So I'm going to show a very brief clip um, from the movie Mimic. In this clip, the characters are trapped in the subway by these creatures, and the scientist sort of admits uh, how wrong she was. And you should be able to hear the sound. When I increased the Judas's metabolism, I must have sped up its breeding cycle. I mean, we're talking tens, hundreds of thousands of generations. I mean, who knows how many mutations? Listen, I, I just don't fucking get this. How could the, how could the Judas evolve into this? Think generations, not years, okay? It took only 40,000 generations for apes to turn into humans. So? We changed its DNA, Peter. I mean, we don't know what we did. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. If that thing has been around, how come, how come nobody's ever seen it? I think we have. Sometimes an insect will evolve to mimic its predator. A fly can look like a spider. Caterpillar can look like a snake. The Judas evolved to mimic its predator. Us. Nobody up there knows about this. Nobody would. Not until it's too late. These things can imitate us, they can infiltrate us, and breed a legion before anyone would even notice. How how could you do this? How how could you do this? You, you take something, you, you make it like a man. A man who's not a man. Manny. A thing. Manny. This 
Tell Manny, you tell hey. her cause she don't give a goddamn. Hey, hey, hey. Your kids go to my legs. Choose Shut up, boy. And they're both Shut talking the about insects. We're lost. Okay, so you know, her cry in the film that we changed this DNA, we don't know what we did, right? I mean, that could essentially be the tagline for any genetically engineered monster film, right? It gets at the sort of supposed hubris of scientists thinking that they can control the power of genetics. But Mimic also takes a more balanced view of genetic engineering. So the scientist in the film, right? She's not a mad scientist. She's not a greedy scientist. She created that organism because she wanted to prevent the death of millions of children. So there's a film um, from this year, down at the bottom you see called Vesper, uh, streaming now. Um, it also shows scientists trying to help a dying world by engineering plants to live in an ecologically devastated area. But unfortunately, genetic plants, the genetic engineer plants, they mutate into monsters with tentacles. So a number of more recent recombinant DNA films ask the audience to sympathize with these scientists who want to harness the power of genetics to do good, but who overestimate their ability to control this power. So if we think about films from the 1950s, right, with fear of nuclear science, those scientists are often portrayed as sort of helplessly beholden to the misguided agendas of corporate or military institutions. But in contrast, many films about genetically modified organisms, right, they don't depict scientists' characters as powerless institutional pawns. Instead, these fictional scientists are active agents within the military or corporate entities. So these movies represent bioengineering not as a powerless institution, but as a corrupt enterprise where scientists are routinely complicit in creating genetically engineered monsters, you know, merely for the sake of profit, as in the film Splice, or to create bioweapons, as in the film Rampage. So in many recent recombinant DNA films, commercialization now trumps ethics. Okay, so now I want to discuss some of the major themes that emerge in movies concerning the other two types of genetic engineering. Right, so. Um, cloning and human gene therapy. And what I found in my research is that most films about cloning or human genetic engineering, right, they take as true the ide ideology known as genetic determinism. And genetic determinism is the belief that all human behavior and thus all of human society is determined exclusively by a person's genetic makeup. And most of the themes and films about cloning or genetically engineered humans emerges from the fact that, the that these engineered in individuals were created with specific goals in mind and that the film takes genetic determinism as a fact. So I'm gonna show you an example of how movies take genetic determinism as true in a clip from the film Assassin's Creed. So in this clip, uh, a scientist is explained to a criminal why it is that he's a criminal. What is this? I know everything about you, Cal. Your medical data, your psychological profile, the mutations in your MAOA gene. 
I know about the foster homes, the juvenile halls. You're living proof of the link between heredity and crime. How did you find me? We found Aguilar. When you were arrested, your DNA matched his. Who's Aguilar? Your ancestor. His family were assassins. They were burned at the stake by the Templars, Torquemada, and the Black Knight Yuso Ojeda. Aguilar took up the assassin's cause. Get out much? More than you. And the others in here, are they lab rats too? They're assassins, murderers like their ancestors. Like you, Cal. All born with a predisposition to violence. Okay, so that's a very strong form of genetic determinism, right? It's actually a pretty insidious form of genetic determinism, right? Because genetic determinists believe that human nature is fixed in an individual's genes before birth, right? Therefore, social programs and education would be useless in fixing those types of social issues. Now, the notion of genetic determinism is why one of the major themes in films about cloned humans is that evil is inherited. So human clones are often depicted as monstrous and evil creations. And with clones, this theme sometimes gets played out in religious terms, whereas the idea is that because clones don't have unique genomes, they will not have unique souls, as was the case uh, in the recent horror film, Us, that you see on the, the right. And clones in these types of films are depicted as beings of pure intellect without emotion or morality. So they essentially symbolize the sort of perfect embodiment of rational science. Now, the theme of the evil clone is related to the nature versus nurture debate. And these films strongly embrace the notion of genetic determinism by portraying evil as an inherited trait. So no matter what is done to help the clone avoid the path of their donor, they inevitably become evil. So for example, in the film Godsend, there is an evil boy who dies and his scientist father tries to resurrect him by infusing his genes into the bodies of, of other dead boys. And inevitably, each of these cloned boys gravitates towards evil, just as their donors had. Now, another common representation of human cloning in films involves clones being unaware of their status as clones, who then undergo an identity crisis when they learn about their origins, as the films in the top row do. Now, these films actually strongly reject genetic determinism, right, because they portray the clones as completely different individuals from their donors. And these films deal with notions of identity formation and self-determination, as well as the idea that these individuals are treated as objects because they were created as products. And the ideology of genetic determinism though plays a key part in films featuring genetically engineered humans. So the societies in the films below believe that you know who we are is in our genes. So many of these films depict an overriding concern as to what you know the effect genetic engineering will have on the engineered character's sense of self-identity. So like any contemporary person, genetically engineered individuals in these films are searching for their identities, right? Who am I? 
What's my place in the world? What should I do with my life? Unlike engineered individuals, in understanding of our genetic origins, it doesn't generally play too much of a role in determining our sense of self, right? And certainly much less of a role than factors such as familial relationships, social status, or education. But for those who are genetically engineered, like the characters in those films, the search for identity takes on a whole new meaning, right? As they come to grips with the fact that other humans chose to create their specific genome without their consent. Now, one reason that genetically engineered characters question their self-identity comes from the expectations that parents and society have for their enhanced genome, right? They know another person created their genome with specific outcomes in mind. And because these societies adhere to a genetic determinist ideology, there's an expectation that genetic inheritance is equivalent to predestination. So if a character fails to live up to that destiny, they consider themselves a failure as in the movie Gattaca, right? Where the character of Eugene is unable to live up to the expectations by his supposedly flawless genome, right? He was engineered to be an Olympic swimmer, but he only wins a silver medal at the games. Now these films, however, they're not just about modified characters' inability to establish their self-identities, but they also must come to grips with the question of which identity would actually represent their authentic selves. Specifically, characters grapple with the question of what part does their genetic modification play in their authentic self? So for example, in the 2018 film Perfect that you see on the bottom right, an emotionally disturbed boy is sent to a clinic where he is genetically engineered to quote unquote fix his emotional problems. But the major conflict in the film is the question of what represents his authentic self? Is it his original self or the genetically engineered version? Now, despite the identity confusion caused by their modifications, in the end, the characters in almost all of these films come to the very genetic determinist conclusion that authenticity is found only within your genome. Now, these characters have come to accept that their true selves are bound by their DNA and that they are their genomes. Um, and so some, uh, some conclusions. There's one notable exception to the idea of films embracing genetic determinism. So like, unlike these other films, Gattaca actually maintains that, you know, the ethical issues that come with human genetic engineering, they're not gonna result from the technology itself. Gattaca suggests that ethical problems only arise if we accept genetic determinism as true. So the over message in Gattaca is that we're more than the sum of our genes, right? That being human means we can transcend our genetic obstacles. Or sorry, accepts that, you know, we are inherently flawed, but unlike other films, Gattaca doesn't question the morality of hereditary intervention to remove these imperfections. Instead, the film asks the audience to consider what they lose if they remove their genetic flaws. However, most films about genetic engineering accept that genetic determinist proposition that the essence of humanity, both good and bad, is deeply rooted in our genome. And the scientists in these movies, they often attribute an almost mystical significance to our genome. But at the same time, these narratives criticize anyone who would try and change our heredity. So in conclusion, 
the cinema ultimately takes a very conservative approach to uh, genomic modification by constructing narratives that simultaneously embrace the notion that our fate is in our genome while strongly opposing any scientific attempts to change this quote unquote sacred entity. So according to the movies, the devil is in our DNA, but it's our devil. And we really resent anyone trying to change it. And so I will uh, stop there. All right, thank you so much. Uh, please go ahead and uh, use the raise hand function uh, to ask our speakers question. Looks like we have a question from Ashton. Um, do you want to mute yourself to ask that question? Is, is this the question in the uh, chat? Because I, I read it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. So I can read the question um, that Ashton has for me. Uh, she says, um, I think this was coincidental, but I noticed in your last slide that all the scientists you feature are men and only one is non-white. Could you briefly comment on how gender and or race intersects with these images of scientists in cinema, particularly perhaps in these frontier contexts? Um, yes, it was not coincidental. <laughs> the, the scientist uh, is often um, uh, identified as uh, as male and white. There was one movie, um, uh, one one scientist who I didn't uh, talk about or include uh, in um, the I Am Legend movie, uh, who was uh, female um, and white, uh, who uh, was. Um, a scientist who released the Crippen virus that ended up causing the um, mutation of the, the people into, into zombies. But uh, yeah, for the most part, um, I think uh, the, the scientist in a lot of these movies is uh, a white male because uh, it's kind of reflecting that frontier um, ethos of the, the scientist. And that's something that I talk about a lot in my book on the frontiers of science about how that way of sort of thinking about scientists as explorers on the frontiers of knowledge really um, tends to focus our attention on uh, a particular kind of um, loner, uh, um, heroic male um, uh, colonialist. <laughs> I could, I could uh, maybe answer a little bit based on some of the work that I've done um, just to say that the, the stereotype or the, the demographics of scientists in movies has changed quite a bit over the last 20 years, uh, and that you actually get a lot more female scientists in these movies. But one of the things you find is that the female scientists still sort of conform to a lot of traditional stereotypes about women and feminism, or, and, and um, sort of the idea that they're always still searching for love, they're always still challenged by men. There's the focus on their looks. You know, they don't have children. So things of, of that nature, um, even though there's a lot more women scientists in movies nowadays. Questions for us? I have a question myself, you people um, don't have a question, but I was gonna ask about, question for uh, David. So is the genetic determinism, is that just because it's an easy explanation for the screen? Or can you talk about a little bit behind why that's such a, a common uh, uh, method to, to, to portray these uh, ideas? 
Yeah, it's interesting. If it, you know, as part of my studies, I looked at science fiction literature, and science fiction literature is the exact opposite. Right? They uh, really reject genetic determinism, and you know, they embrace the idea of genetic engineering. Right, the idea that well, we can use this to get to the next stage of humanity. Right, become Homo superior. Um, but movies in general are often very conservative towards technological change um, anyway. Uh, and there's, I, I think, also a fear of, um, you know, sort of robbing us of our individuality uh, in some ways, right? So the idea that, well, if genetic engineering is going to change us in one sort of direction, um, that means we're not in control of our of our destinies. And a lot of the filmmakers and how people in Hollywood don't like that sort of notion really uh, coming up. Um, but also, you know, and especially these cloning films, the the ones that can move against genetic determinism, you know, it's 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 the it's the entire sort of conflict in in the film, right? Am I or am I not um, who I am because of of, of my genes? Uh, Nolan and Jennifer. Yeah, um, I had. Uh, I'm hoping y'all both of you can speak to this. Um, I had sort of like a methodological question in terms of. Well, first of all, I was made aware of like way more films <laughs> that you know involved genetic engineering than I originally thought. Um, so I'm wondering how you all think about, um, you know, kind of like surveying the landscape of of what's out there, but at the same time, both of you kind of did zoom in on um, on particular, I guess I'll call them texts, but films, you know, and, and even specific scenes. So how do you, like as researchers kind of grapple with that tension of um, knowing that there's a lot, you know, if you really try to survey the field, there's quite a few uh, science fiction films that deal with genetics, but also pulling out some of the, the real particular things that you find interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can I can just respond, Nolan, that um, as a scholar of the humanities, methodology sort of isn't my my um, focus. <laughs> uh, so I'm not trying to really survey the whole landscape and tell you like how count how many women are scientists in movies and 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 you know how many um, uh, white guys are are uh, the the scientists. Um, I think that's really important research and and. Uh, and should be done. Um, what what I do as a, a rhetorician of science, someone who sort of looks at the the sort of the arguments that are played out in a particular case, is I like to hone in on on particular telling examples. Um, so I'm going to just sort of punt the the methodology question a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll in some ways punt it as well in in the sense of. A, a complete survey is impossible. I mean, there are some sociologists who've looked at lots of films. I mean, before streaming, for example, um, you know, one of the sort of things that I did to sort of eliminate films is I'm only going to look at films that um, were eligible for Academy Awards, right? And so that way you got at least something that's, you know, uh, constrained a little bit. But even that, you really couldn't survey the entire field. Now with streaming, it's it's impossible. Um, and I, I would say again that finding, you know, good illustrative examples is you know one of the best ways to do it. I mean, uh, but also I often try and find enough films for generalizations. Have I done enough to say okay, I can 
this is not just unique to this film. It's generalizable to other types of films. Um, but, you know, I've written about one film, Gattaca, and three separate papers. There was enough there to talk about it. But in other films, um, I've done as much of a survey as I could over 100 years of cinema to try and look at eugenics uh, in cinema. So, yeah, you'll never get all of it, um, but you hopefully get enough that you can generalize. Thanks. Okay. Um, so my question uh, is, mm, well, to either or both of you guys, um, how has the narrative about science, scientist or science capability changed with the change in amount of information that we have gathered? So I know David talked a little bit about the sort of change over the decades and that maybe corresponds to, um, you know, gaining scientific information, but also thinking specifically about Gattaca because Leah pointed out that all of the offerings that you could do to have your child genetically engineered were, you know, these very specific things. And that movie came out before the human genome was published. And um, I'm, I'm just wondering how the speculation for, you know, scientific accomplishments um, has changed in light of what we know about genetics now? Yeah, I mean, I haven't looked at enough examples across time really to be able to answer that question. David, you might have a better answer. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, um, you know, science getting better, genetic science getting better, us being able to do more with it, knowing more about it, uh, to be honest, my study of these hundred years of cinema, it hasn't really changed the way in which movies um, have approached this, uh, because even back before we knew, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, I found films, uh, even in the teens, of, you know, scientists manipulating heredity, even though they had no idea what, what the hereditary molecule was. Uh, and so it represents a sort of general fear about scientists manipulating what supposedly makes us human, right? The, the thing that we believe only makes us human. So really that's a deep-seated fear uh, that no matter how much we know, really doesn't change that. Uh, maybe another hundred years from now we'll have something that allays people's fears about it. I don't know. But you know, even as of today, it's still the same fear. Yeah. Even scientists' knowledge is better. That means they're going to be changing more. They'll know exactly what to change or, or do something along those lines. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say uh, it's the same figures over the last hundred years, for sure. Um, All right. Uh, we have a comment from Stephanie. Uh, they say, I've definitely noticed that representation in media of women scientists is stereotyped but I've, not, I've never noticed the no children stereotype, uh, now that you pointed out, I'll be on the lookout for it. And then I'll read Fred's question, which is uh, why, why would different media have different takes on determinism or are they really different? Is, is that to you, David, maybe? I mean, I, I can, I can oh, make it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll uh, answer, but you can you can uh, jump in as well. Um, 
I mean, one of the things about science fiction literature um, is that it's often written by people who are either former scientists or still working scientists. Um, and from their perspective, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, afraid of the changes that might come with this type of technology. Um, so they sort of em embrace it. And science fiction literature in general, um, you know, there are some that talk about you know, potential disasters with technology, but most of them, you know, especially hard science fiction embraces that sort of uh, change. And it's about not necessarily saying, oh, we're afraid of it, but just sort of explore, hey, what's gonna happen when this change comes? Uh, whereas science fiction cinema often tends to be more uh, negative or pessimistic about technology. I actually have a question uh, for David. Um, if we have a second. Uh, so um, you, you you talk about Gattaca and I talked about Gattaca as well. And I'm kind of wondering uh, what you think. I, I don't know how much of my talk you were able to see. One of the arguments that I make about Gattaca is that the fact that um, so many of the, the valid characters in the movie have the very uh, traits that the scientists say that they were able to remove uh, suggests that maybe the movie isn't um, as much about sort of how the human spirit can overcome our genetic uh, um, uh, engineered uh, selves, but uh, that maybe the, the scientists really can't uh, do what they say they can do, at least in those cases, but they they were able to make that 12-fingered man, <laughs> which uh, um, Vincent had no response to. And so I'm wondering what you think about um, that aspect of the movie that um, how does it really work as an argument against um, human uh, against genetic determinism if in fact the scientists weren't able to do what they said in most cases, except in that one case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, that's actually the only, you know, again, I apologize, came in late. That's the only part I caught of your talk. And I think I, I totally agree with what you're saying that, yeah, the, the, the characters, you know, this idea of them not meeting expectations potentially is because, well, the scientists can't do exactly what they said they're gonna be doing. But I think it fits along with my um, analysis as well in that it's really about the society accepting the idea of genetic determinism, right? They end up believing so strongly in it that, um, you know, they place these sort of pressures on people to say, oh, well, you've gotten these genes, you must be this particular way. And even if they show that they're not, they can't, you know, it's, um, I've got to blank on the word where we can't hold two beliefs together that, um, you know, go against each other, right? Uh, yeah, the genetic determinism, that's very good. Yeah, the genetic determinism yeah. is like sort of a construct in our brains uh, that yeah. is uh, uh, flawed that we need to uh, give up. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Please help me and thank our speakers today. Uh, we're slightly over our time. Uh, this was a great conversation. Um, if you have any questions, you can... Uh, ask them and we'll relay them to our speakers. Um, with that, I will end the colloquium today. Uh, thank you everybody for attending and thank you to our speakers. Thank you, you guys. That was really great. That was very interesting. Thank you for having yeah, us. Great, sorry. Yeah, 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 sorry, I missed your, your talk. I, I totally, my calendar kept saying noon. <laughs> 
And um, so I was just like, oh, well, okay, it's taken into account the three-hour oh. difference <laughs> and yep. made it noon. And so when in reality, I think you guys kept telling us it was nine and so, or whatever, anyway, sorry, my apologies. It's okay. The, the technology is flawed yet again. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, I know. Time it's, zone. It's, helper feature doesn't help too much sometimes well I'm actually I'm glad you were able to hear the last part of it because that's what I was most interested in hearing from you because I know you've written a couple of articles on Gattaca and I've read them and and um I, yeah having someone who knows the movie uh, contest my argument about it is fantastic I'm glad I got that opportunity yeah, yeah. do you yeah, all no, have I, two I, more I, minutes to I'm sorry do you have two more minutes because yeah. Rex yeah. has a question and he's still on and you're still here and Maybe you can just answer it right now. Um, he wrote in the chat, have you explored any relationship between failed scientists and as villains and successful scientists as heroes in other science movies? I, I have not, but I, I mean, the, 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 the very wording of that question, a lot of times it's the, the successful scientists that are the villains uh, rather than, than failed scientists, um, that it's, uh, that, you know, the scientist who succeeds in producing this um, new uh, organism that then goes on to wreak havoc. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um... I don't know about a relationship between the failed scientists and the hero scientists, but um, often, and you know, of course, I didn't have time in in the talk to add this, but I wanted to talk a little bit about in terms of again, sort of genetic determinism creeping up. Um, many scientists in movies, like in the Captain America movie or in um, the Kingsman movie, um, the idea is that human society is so flawed, right, that our genetics are so bad that the only way, and the island of Dr. Moreau is about this as well, the only way to, to fix it is to wipe out humans and start over again, mm -hmm. right? Because genetics are so problematic. So it's, it's interesting that a lot of the villains sort of see that, you know, I'm gonna create a virus that's gonna kill everybody or, you know, save only the best of our genetic stock or whatever, whatever it might be. Okay. Well, thank you guys again so much. And um, when the recording is posted online, Patty will send you, excuse me, I have to sneeze. <laughs> uh, Patty will send you a um, email with the link so you can have access to that for your records. Um, okay, guys, good job organizing an interesting colloquium. Thank you. And Thanks. Uh, maybe we'll see you next week. And y'all are always welcome to join if something is of interest to you in the future. Okay. Thank, Thank you so much. Uh, Appreciate bye. it. Bye. bye.